Last week, Nicole helped us read the envelope of the letters to the church at Thessalonica, a church that we learned was made up of a mixture of Jews and Gentiles in a free city within the Roman Empire. The the Thessalonian church had experienced persecution from its onset, resulting in a quick exit of Paul, Silas, and Timothy. There's no doubt Paul sent Timothy back as soon as he was able because he was concerned for the new believer's faith. Was their faith lasting amidst suffering? Had their faith produced any fruit? Or had persecution scorched what had sprouted? Had their faith fallen away before ever taking root? An introductory verse like verse 1 is easy to skip over. You saw I skipped over it in the homework. (laughs) But as Nicole noted last week, this is likely the first of Paul's epistles, one of the earliest New Testament books written. So common words that we are overly familiar with are worth stopping to take a slower look at to capture the depth of the meaning the original audience would have felt. So let's read chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, and God the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. First, let's zoom in on that word, church. We hear the word a lot in our context, right? Where do you go to church? Oh, that church across the street. She goes to church with me. The church is in a building. It's the people. Church is a word we use without thinking much about its origins. Now, you may know that ecclesia is the Greek word for church. What I was surprised to find was the term ecclesia was used widely in Greco-Roman culture, referring to a governing assembly of free, high-class male citizens to make important decisions for a community in a Greek city. A commentator noted that since religion and politics were not separated, often the assemblies gathered in the presence of someone who was considered a deity, to whom the assembly would offer prayers and sacrifices. The term ecclesia is what the Greek Old Testament used for the Hebrew kahal, which referred to the people of God, an assembly of Yahweh. And we often see kahal translated to assembly or congregation throughout the English Old Testament. So Paul and his team, calling the recipients of their letter an ecclesia, a church, tied this group of believers in Thessalonica made up of Jews and Gentiles, high class and low class, male and female, to God's people of all time. This wasn't just any gathered assembly around a deity of a certain community that was only allowed certain persons. No, this gathered assembly was a group that included persons from every social division in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Another word we often skip right over in our current context is Lord. We hear the title, we speak the title, we sing the title, but we can miss the seriousness and depth of the title that the Thessalonians had in their hearing, speaking, and singing. When Jesus Christ is given the title Lord, it is speaking in part to his deity. In the epistle to the church at Philippi, Paul says it is the name that God has highly exalted Christ with and bestowed on him, the name that every knee will bow to and every tongue will confess. 
The word Lord encompassed what we think of when we hear king, master, God, and savior. So what makes the difference from our culture's use of the word to the culture the Thessalonians lived in? Lord was a title given to Caesar in the Roman Empire to signal his kingship and his self-proclaimed deity. Statues and coins throughout the empire would have had this title inscribed along with Caesar's image. Rome's main issue with believers wasn't necessarily that they worshipped God. There were many gods worshipped throughout the empire. The problem was the believers' declaration that there was another lord, another king, besides Caesar. It was an issue of allegiance. In Luke's account of the team's visit to Thessalonica in Acts 17, that is what the mob cites to the governing authorities. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. They are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. Declaring another king, a greater king, outside the imperial cult was deemed a political affront against Caesar. This is the main reason why the churches in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ throughout the empire experience persecution and even martyrdom. Paul is addressing a gathered assembly that is far different than the cultural norm. This church is proclaiming allegiance to another king besides Caesar. And Paul greets his readers with grace and peace. Grace summarizes the gift of salvation that the Thessalonian believers, and by extension, future believers, have experienced. Peace captures the reconciliation believers now have between God and humanity through Christ. Let's keep going. We're going to look at verses 2 through the first part of 5. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, and labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. Probably the most well-known passage in this epistle includes the command to pray without ceasing in chapter 5. Paul and his team led by example to that command in this letter, which includes them breaking out in prayer at least three times. This first prayer is of thanks to God for the evidence of salvation being brought to the Thessalonian believers. This is a normal section for Paul to include in his epistles. He usually took time to thank God for those whom he was addressing. Paul specifically named the Thessalonians' work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope as reasons his team thank God. The first, work of faith, may seem like an oxymoron. Often, works and faith are wrongly pitted against one another. While we come to salvation by grace alone, through faith, and not by our own works, James, in his epistle, and Paul, in other epistles, make it clear that works are evidence of faith. They are the outward signs or expressions of an inward transformed reality. And Paul's team thanked God because the Thessalonians' faith had produced works. If James wrote to the Thessalonians, perhaps he would have said that they had no need to worry about their faith being dead because their works proved their faith was very much alive. The second was their labor of love. This is agape love that Paul is speaking of, unconditional love. 
the love God had shown the Thessalonians, they had returned to him. They showed this love to one another in the church, and they introduced this love to unbelievers. Those of you sitting here with me know to show this kind of love to any other human is indeed labor. This self-sacrificing, others-elevating love is work. And the Thessalonians will be commended for the love they show multiple times in this letter. The last mentioned is their steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. We know now they were enduring persecution. What inspired steadfastness in them? Hope. Hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. This is not a disconnected, abstract idea. It is a particular and specific hope. Their hope is what Peter described as a living hope. It is a solid and sure confidence, specifically in the future return of the Lord Jesus Christ. As you saw in your homework this past week, this familiar triad of Paul's that we know best from 1 Corinthians 13 as faith, hope, and love is in a different order. Hope is listed last here. Hope is last because it is tied to the most important topic in the letters to the Thessalonians. Paul will mention the return of Christ multiple times before he explicitly instructs the Thessalonians in chapters 4 and 5 and also in the second epistle on Christ's second coming. The hope of the return of Christ was on the forefront of the Thessalonians' minds, and their hope is what kept them enduring the circumstances they faced. Verse 4 in the beginning of 5 recalled how the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ's life, death, resurrection, and ascension came to Thessalonica. When I read verse 4, you probably noticed I included brothers and sisters. I promise I'm not inserting something just because I wanted to. If you primarily use the CSB, you were not surprised by that because your translation reads that way in every instance of the Greek word adelphoi. For others, you will see at the footnote at the bottom of your text that this word means brothers and sisters. It is worth noting now because the term is used close to 30 times in these two short epistles alone. The letters were written to the entire church, brothers and sisters. Again, an example of language we are overly familiar with, though we don't often refer to each other as such in casual conversation anymore. It may not seem worth mentioning, but as one of my favorite podcasts titled a recent episode, Brothers and Sisters, More Than a Metaphor, this wasn't and isn't just fluffy, filler, flattering language. It's not just a word that gets close to describing the relationship between believers. The church was a family, a spiritual family transcending any physical, biological relationships. In fact, for both Jew and Gentile, it is probable believers were no longer welcomed into their family of origin after their profession that Jesus Christ was Lord. The members of the Thessalonian church were their brothers and sisters in every sense because they were loved and chosen by God their Father before the foundation of the world. The gospel Paul's team proclaimed came in three things, power, the Holy Spirit, and full conviction. Gospel was also a common term in the Roman Empire. News of events or decrees in the life of Caesar spread through the empire as Caesar's gospel. 
Paul contrasted those gospels to the gospel that came to the Thessalonians. This gospel wasn't merely word. As Paul wrote to the church at Rome, the gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. The Spirit's miraculous work was in the response of the Thessalonians showed that the gospel of Jesus Christ is good news with transformative power and lasting convictions. Let's read through the end of the chapter. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we, know, we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This prayer of thanks also serves as an introduction for the remainder of the letter. Paul will circle back uh, to the latter part of verse 5 more fully in chapter 2. In verse 6, we see the church commended for how they have handled their persecution. You spent time in your homework this week looking at several New Testament passages dealing with suffering. All were instructions or examples of other believers facing trials with joy from the Holy Spirit. Verse 7 says the Thessalonians' response to suffering became an example to all believers throughout their region. They had imitated Christ and Paul's team's response to persecution. Now they are the ones to be imitated. A scholar noted that this is the only time in the New Testament where an entire congregation is viewed as a model for other churches. I found that noteworthy. Although it was not just their model in suffering that had been spread abroad, but the word of the Lord and their faith in God. Even amidst persecution, they did not keep the gospel that had changed their lives to themselves. It had sounded forth and gone everywhere. When Paul says, we need not say anything, he's saying the Thessalonians' evangelistic efforts had helped his own. Paul's team was at Corinth in Achaia, the province to the south of Macedonia where Thessalonica was the capital city. Paul's team has heard about the Thessalonians sharing the gospel from people they are running into, not just from Timothy's report. These other people report to Paul the Thessalonians' own testimony, how they turned from idols to serve the living and true God. This is a description of conversion and repentance, turning away from what is false and dead and turning to God who is living and true. The Roman Empire had a pantheon of gods. They accepted polytheism and pluralism insofar as civilians didn't fully abandon the idols everyone else poured out allegiance to, including the emperor. This description shows the Thessalonians didn't just add God to the list of gods worshipped in their culture. Rather, they completely left them to serve the only one who is living and true. This is our testimony as believers too, isn't it? Even in our current culture, there are many idols that are worshipped and gods that are shown allegiance not to be questioned. The gods of comfort, money, power, politics, materialism, and self-seeking run rampant in our culture. 
We talk about idols a lot in our studies because the Bible talks a lot about them. It's difficult for us sometimes to remember our culture has an idol problem, though. Matt Smethers defines an idol as something you sin to get or sin because you don't get it. I'm going to read that again. An idol is something you sin to get or sin because you don't get it. I think that's a really concrete definition to our idols that can seem much more abstract than a small statues that are carried around or put on shelves. John Calvin said, the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. We experience this in our own lives and have seen in our, old time, in our time spent in the Old Testament, the people of God have always been tempted to elevate something above the one true God. Repentance is the act of continually putting those idols to death, no matter if the culture accepts or demands allegiance to them, fully abandoning them to worship God alone. We must know there isn't room on the throne of our hearts to add or mix with God. We can only serve one. Our hearts aren't made to multitask in worship. The Thessalonian believers had turned from idols to serve this living and true God and to wait for God's Son from heaven. At first glance, it seems like serving God and waiting for His Son are opposite actions. After all, when I tell my boys to wait five minutes for dinner or to start their screen time, I expect them to be quiet and still, to do nothing, a very passive waiting. Yet as you saw this week in some Old Testament cross-references, waiting for the Lord is anything but passive. It is an active, purposeful holding fast to the return of Christ. I think the best illustration for this is of a bride-to-be. We've all been around brides. We know from as soon as the ring is placed on her hand, there are plans to be dreamed and executed. The time between the engagement and the wedding day is a time of waiting, but typically it is anything but a passive time. Sure, some of you maybe know a bride that had to be poked and prodded to make decisions. But even then, the day comes and the bride actively waits by getting ready to walk down the aisle. Hair, makeup, the dress, shoes, pictures, last-minute details. It is an active waiting as she waits to be pronounced as a wife. This kind of hope-filled waiting fueled the Thessalonians' service to God, and it should fuel ours as well. And the Thessalonians are waiting for Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. In coming weeks, we will discuss more about this wrath to come. In short, it refers to the final judgment that Christ will carry out when he comes again. This wrath will be the full and final punishment of God against sin. Paul's use of the name Jesus here without Lord or Christ is actually rare in his writings. He hardly used the name Jesus alone. His use here is probably to ground the historical authenticity of the God-man. Jesus of Nazareth was a real person who died, was raised from the dead by God, and who ascended to heaven, making him the only one able to deliver those who have faith in him from the wrath of God. At the end of this first thought, we see Paul and team thanked God for the Thessalonians' work of faith in their turning to God from idols, their labor of love and their service to the true and living God, and their steadfastness of hope as they wait for God's Son from heaven. 
In the next section, Paul shifts to recalling his team's ministry to the Thessalonians. We're going to read chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. For you yourselves know, brothers and sisters, that our coming to you is not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers and sisters, our labor and toil. We worked at night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You were witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This section gives us more details uh, to Paul's team's stay with the Thessalonians than the nine verses we get from Luke and Acts. What we don't know for sure was whether Paul included this section because opponents are casting doubt on his time in Thessalonica with the abrupt exit, or if Paul was just contrasting his ministry to that of the philosophers and false teachers of the day. Paul first recalled back to his team's time in Philippi prior to entering Thessalonica, where they were seized, beaten, and thrown in prison. Instead of that treatment stopping his team, they showed up with boldness in God to declare his gospel to the Thessalonians. They did not come to Thessalonica to make money or to gain glory from their listeners. Instead, they came to preach the gospel because they were approved by and entrusted to the pro proclamation by God as apostles. Their primary concern was to please God. Paul likened his team's ministry to a nursing mother taking care of her own children. And this image actually refers to a woman hired as a wet nurse, which would have been a regular practice during this time. To find something similar in our own context, I thought about the three years I taught kindergarten. Those children were not my own, but my love and concern for them is still alive this day. I adore seeing their parents' updates, uh, their updates to social media, and I'm still just so excited I got to be a part of their educational journey. More than a few called me mom at some point throughout our year together, too. Yet, as a mother and teacher of my own children, the love and concern I have for my former students pales in comparison for the love I have for Retzin and Raider. Paul is saying there is an entirely different level of affection his team had for the Thessalonians. They were his spiritual children that he cared for, not someone else's. Verse 9 included Paul referencing his team's tent making, preventing them from becoming a financial burden to the brothers and sisters at Thessalonica. 
We'll also see in coming weeks that his actions were an example for the Thessalonians to model in their daily lives that he will call back to. In verses 4, 5, and 10, Paul referred to God being a witness for his team's heart motivations and conduct. In the same verses, Paul appeals to the Thessalonians being witnesses too. According to the Old Testament law and a widely uh, practiced expectation, two or three witnesses determined the validity of a testimony. Paul called on the Thessalonians to witness what they saw in his team on the outside and called on God as the witness to their hearts, what other humans can't see. Whether their ministry was being questioned by others or compared to other traveling preachers of the day, they were confident in their underlying motivations to call those whom they ministered to and God who they ministered for as their witnesses. In verses 11 and 12, Paul flipped from using imagery as a mother to a father who exhorts, encourages, and charges his children. The first two verbs are very similar, ranging in meaning from comforting to instructing. The last verb, charged, is a bit more forceful. It's a strong urging, almost like a physical push towards a path for the Thessalonians to walk in a manner worthy of God because he called them into his own kingdom and glory. Paul's team came to share the gospel and to serve their spiritual children by sharing their own lives, modeling what it meant to take part in the kingdom of God in their daily lives. Reminding the Thessalonians of their deep love and affectionate desire for them as they ministered among them and their appeal to God for their their heart motivations would have dispelled any fears or questions regarding the team's abrupt exit and doubts that could creep up regarding the team's character that could cloud the gospel message that was shared. Paul now circles back to thanking God for the Thessalonians' reception of the gospel and the imitating of others who have endured persecution. Let's look at the last three verses tonight. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, You accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out, and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. This is one of those passages in the Bible that cannot be stripped of its greater context. It is a passage that has been used to justify anti-Semitism, I find that to be impossible, considering the Jews who are pinning this epistle, especially Paul, who will talk about his love and his desire for his ethnic people to be saved in his epistle to the Romans, and who will constantly pattern in his own ministry that the gospel comes first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. Some scholars believe this was a later added portion of the text that Paul didn't pin. I actually don't think that can be accurate either. I think Paul is using a narrow definition of Jews 
like John does in his gospel, referring to those who have rejected Christ and work against the will of God. So with the two ditches blocked off, let's find the road. First, the team commended again how the Thessalonian believers have handled persecution and encouraged them to see they are not alone in what they are experiencing by mentioning the Judean church's similar persecution. We all know how this is when we are in the middle of suffering. The easiest thing to to believe is that we are alone. Paul says they have imitated the believers in Judea who suffered at the hands of their own countrymen like the Thessalonians. If you remember back in Acts 17, the unbelieving Jews were the ones who grew jealous of the Jewish converts and went and stirred up a mob to take to the city officials. Since that moment, it appears most of the persecution towards the church of the Thessalonians came from unbelieving Gentiles, probably because of their fear to lose free city status, like Nicole mentioned last week. For the Judean believers, the attacks came from some of their own countrymen, here referred to as the Jews. Next, Paul says the Jews killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets. Ultimately, we know through the gospel accounts and the Apostles' Creed that Pontius Pilate, representative of Rome, had the authority to kill Jesus. However, Peter in his sermon at Pentecost and his speech in Solomon's portico to the gathered Jews in Acts 2 and 3 said the Jews were the ones who crucified Jesus. Jews bore responsibility for killing Jesus too. Israel's past in the Old Testament included killing prophets when they didn't want to hear what they had to say. Like in the time of Elijah, uh, mentioned in 1 Kings 19, in addition to the times that Jesus cites in Matthew 23. The Jews also were responsible for driving Paul's team out of many of the cities they had been, including Thessalonica. Then Paul says these Jews displease God and oppose all mankind. How? By hindering them from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. This is the reason for the strong language, y'all. The persecution these Jews inflicted upon believers impeded the spread of the gospel, specifically to the Gentiles, those that many Jews would have deemed unclean and unworthy. These Jews had forgotten that the prophets declared that God planned for the Gentiles to be brought into his salvation. They had forgotten that they were called to be a kingdom of priests, a royal priesthood. They had forgotten that even further back in their history at the calling of Abraham, their patriarch, that God said through Abraham's family, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. They had not only forgotten, but they actively worked against the will of God after rejecting Christ as the promised Messiah. This is why there's so much anger in Paul's words. These unbelieving Jews are trying to thwart the plan of God. And Paul's answer is that when their sin reaches the limit God has already set, that's what the filling up the measure of their sins means in verse 16, that wrath has come upon them at last. Because of the participles in the Greek used in the last sentence, most scholars don't believe Paul is strictly referring to the final judgment alone, though that is in mind with 
at last, meaning fully and completely. With the idea that God's wrath has already come upon these unbelieving Jews, most of the commentators we are using mention three different interpretations. One, this wrath could refer to specific events that had happened that the Thessalonians would have been aware of that were perceived as punishment for the Jews' sins, such as a massacre in the temple during the Passover in A.D. 49. Two, this wrath that had already begun could reference the coming destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in A.D. 70, fulfilling Jesus' prophecy in Matthew 24. And then third, other commentators thought this wrath referred to the partial hardening of hearts of the Jews to the salvation of Christ that would carry through until closer to his return. Paul expands on this idea further in Romans 9 through 11, which also includes mention of a remnant. I think this is one of those moments in scripture that doesn't have to be an either or, but a both and. I can see where the beginning of God's punishment towards the sin of those who are unbelieving could have started with historical events that the Thessalonians would have heard about or other events that were soon to take place. After all, we have seen in our Old Testament studies that God used his wrath as judgment and punishment to draw his people back to him. This wrath could also consist of the partial hardening of hearts in the Jewish people until the return of Christ. The topic of wrath certainly doesn't feel good to end with tonight. I teased uh, Nicole that I should have given her these verses. <laughs> I want you to consider, though, how the Thessalonians would have heard this section. Hearing that those who are persecuting the churches in Christ Jesus would not forever get away with their actions, but would face righteous judgment and wrath from God would undoubtedly have been part of the hope they had of Christ's return to judge the living and the dead. All of the attributes of God, including his wrath, are part of his holiness, and we can rest knowing he has made a way to be delivered from his wrath against sin, found in his Son in heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that will deliver the Thessalonian believers and anyone else who believes. I have a couple of application questions to think about as we close. We will see in coming weeks that the Thessalonian believers are not perfect. They do not have a perfect theology, especially dealing with how they understand the second coming of Christ, which leads to problematic actions that flow from their wrong beliefs. Yet, we saw this tone of deep love and encouragement taken on by Paul and his team in their writing to them. The team knew they weren't perfect, but Paul's team was committed as spiritual parents to encourage their spiritual family at Thessalonica first and foremost. Can we say the same of our spiritual family? Encouragement will be a recurring theme in the two epistles, so I want us to start thinking about it and looking for it now. In a society that lives and breathes cynicism and negativity, anger and outrage, how do we view and speak about our spiritual sisters, brothers, mothers, and fathers? Do they fill our affection through our prayers, words of encouragement, and actions despite seeing their imperfections? Do we thank God for the evidence of faith we see in their lives, making much of their strengths 
and humbly working together to get stronger in areas of weakness. Lastly, at the beginning of the lesson, we saw uh, Christian vocabulary words we might be overly familiar with being a direct juxtaposition to the culture's use of the words around the believers in Thessalonica. Proclaiming Christ as Lord was risky. Abandoning the idol worship that was accepted and even demanded in the culture to serve the one living and true God was costly. Waiting actively for the return of God's son was counter to the culture. Though we find ourselves in a different context, proclaiming Christ as Lord above all earthly kings and kingdoms could cause us to be cast out of circles. Abandoning the accepted idols and expected allegiances today to serve a king whose kingdom is already, but not quite yet, could cost us to lose earthly status. Waiting actively for the living hope of Christ's return and not existing passively to please ourselves will look like absolute foolishness. But if the gospel of Jesus Christ that reached the Thessalonians and has sounded forth to us nearly 2,000 years later is true. If God the Father loves us, has chosen us, and has called us into his kingdom and glory through his beloved Son, giving us a spiritual family that transcends earthly relationships, then any temporary loss, suffering, or persecution is worth walking in a manner worthy of the one living and true God. What does the manner we are walking in right now say about who or what we proclaim to worship and serve? How are we serving God by sharing the gospel and our very lives with those that God has placed in our spheres of influence who are unbelieving and chasing after what is false and dead? What does our waiting for the return of Christ look like? Are we actively waiting like a preparing bride? Or are we only passively existing? May the testimony of others in our lives be like those who had met the Thessalonians. May they identify that we have turned to God from idols to serve him and to wait for his son that will deliver us from the wrath to come. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you. I thank you for your word. I thank you for this word specifically to the Thessalonians that still speaks to us today. I pray that as we continue tonight, that our discussion and, and what the insights that we have seen from our own time of study would just encourage and exhort and charge one another. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen. <laughs>